So a question that we introduced last week, which by the way, this is week number two of a series entitled, it's pretty good, good enough. Uh, You can probably see that on the screen, which we are continuing this series and we introduced a question last week, or I should say Harley and Bryce introduced a question last week. And that question was this, who gets into heaven? That was the question, who gets into heaven? And to be very honest, we kind of left that question a little bit unanswered. We kind of left you hanging a little bit. It was a cliffhanger. We just kind of asked everyone to live in that tension a little bit this week. And we even asked you to ask yourself a question during the week as a next step. We ask you to kind of think to yourself this week, if God walked up to you this past week and came up to you face to face, eyeball to eyeball, and asked you this question, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your response be? If God were to walk up, would have walked up to you last week and said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your response have been? Now, me as a teenager, Cole as a teenager, if I would have heard a pastor, a teacher, a preacher, uh, a, 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 a youth leader, a youth director, whatever, if I would have asked, uh, heard uh, someone teaching on that, I would have immediately kind of perked up. I would have immediately begun to take some notes, really listen, because I would have really wanted to know what would the answer have been to that question. Now, much of what we're going to be talking about this morning is something we have learned from a mentor uh, of ours. And, And what we learned last week, one of the things that we learned last week in relation to this question of who gets into heaven is, is this. Most of the world, most of the world, Even most people who claim to be Christians, most people who, if you were to walk out here on the street and say, what do you claim to be? What religion, what belief system do you claim? They would say, well, we claim to be a Christian. Most of the world, regardless of what time period they lived in, where they're from, what cultural background they have, most people, when they are asked, how do I get to heaven? Most people would say, well, you've got to be good to get to heaven. Good people go to heaven. That's the way most people respond. They would say, so we have to be pretty good to get into heaven. In fact, that's our serious question. Is pretty good good enough? That's the serious question. And it's a question I've struggled with in my life in the past. It may even be a question that you've struggled with. How do I get there? Is pretty good good enough? And and if if that question kind of leads us to this idea that if good people go to heaven, if that's true, well then... That means that what we do on this side of the grave determines what happens on that side of the grave. So what we do on this side of heaven determines what happens on that side of heaven, if in fact good people go to heaven. But the problem is, and when we talked about this, or Bryce and Harley talked about this last week, I talked about it in Stuttgart, the problem is that when we think about that way of thinking critically, we kind of put our critical thinking hats on, and, and we look at that way of thinking where, you know, you've got to be good enough to get into heaven. When we think about that critically, we immediately begin to realize we've got some real problems with that way of thinking. And we talked about some of those problems. One of those problems is this. We, we really don't know what good is. We really don't have a good definition of good. What, what, what determines good versus bad? What determines right? I mean, even religious leaders can't agree on good, the definition of, 
of good. You say, well, we've got this internal sense of right versus wrong. We have this moral compass. We have this uh, conscience. We have this value system. Uh, and, and we talked about last week how, well, yeah, but everyone's value system is kind of different. Everyone's moral compass is a little bit different. So which standard is it that God is actually using? What standard of good does God actually use? If, in fact, good people go to heaven. If that's the answer of how do you get into heaven, you've got to be good. We've got a problem where God doesn't really tell us the scoring system. We don't have this rubric, you know, that tells us, you know, this is how we're being evaluated. Be this good and get in. Don't be this good and don't get in. That's a problem. If, in fact, good people go to heaven, if that's the, if that's the, uh, the point. Another problem that we talked about last week is, is this. Scripture tells us, the New Covenant specifically, Jesus himself told us, uh, that God is good. God is good. God is love. I believe that. I believe very strongly. God is good. God is love. God is the personification in Jesus of good. But if God has left us in the dark on something that is so important, how to get into heaven, and good people get into heaven, if that's the case, and God has left us in the dark as to what is the evaluation, what is the standard, can God really be good and loving if he's left us in the dark on this huge question? Now, you may be wrestling with some tension right now, and that's okay. Um, you might have wrestled with that tension all week long last week, and you may be saying, wait a second, hold on just a second. Objection, I would like to throw an objection out there right now. Wait a minute, did God not give us the Bible to answer some of those questions? Did God not give us the Bible to tell us right versus wrong so that we could know how good we have to be to get in? Is that not the reason that we were given the Bible? And many people really think that, that that's why we have the Bible. So, so for the next 25 or 30 minutes, that's what we're going to talk about, um, is, is that question or that point that many people would, would go to. Now, when I think about the Old Covenant, and when I say the Old Covenant, I'm talking about what a lot of people think of as the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, the first 39 books of the Bible. When I think about the Old Covenant, for better or for worse, for right or for wrong, this is what I think about when I think about the Old Covenant. I think about the rules. I think about the law. I think about follow the rules. That's what I think about when I think about the Old Covenant. Now, as it pertains to the laws, you are probably very well aware of the Ten Commandments. Most people are very uh, comfortable, at the very least, with the phrase, the Ten Commandments. Um, at least the movie, right? The movie, the Ten, you know, Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments, and the, and the Red Sea, and all that. Right, everybody has probably at least heard of the Ten Commandments. And you might even think, yeah, okay, the Ten Commandments. I, I think we should probably follow the Ten Commandments, even though most of us might not even be able to list the Ten Commandments. And even though many of us may not even have a clue as to where to find the Ten Commandments, most of us know that they're in there somewhere, and that's probably a pretty good place to start. We're supposed to follow the Ten Commandments. We would think, you know what? Sounds like a pretty good spot to start as to what is the standard to how good we have to be to get into heaven if, in fact, good people go to heaven. Ten Commandments, good spot to start. Maybe God gave us Ten Commandments as a gauge for us to know how to be good enough. Ten Commandments, good spot to start. Surely we can keep ten rules, right? Ten. I mean, we're ten. Ten. We can keep ten. Uh, can we? Can we keep 
10? I mean, look, guys, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not even sure I could list all 10 of them, much less keep all 10 of them. And that's not even the biggest problem. Here's the biggest problem. The Ten Commandments that we all love to talk about and we all love to think about and we all love the movie and the thou shalt not this and that. The Ten Commandments are really just a snapshot. The Ten Commandments are nothing more than a snapshot of the law that the Israelites were given and commanded by God to follow. It's just a little piece of the entire law that God gave. There are a lot more laws that God gave to Israel than just the Ten Commandments, and every one of the laws are equally as valid as the Ten Commandments, those ten, and they are equally as binding as the ten. There are actually 613 commandments. I'm going to say that again in case anyone's dozing off. 613 laws, not ten, 613. I mean, hey, try to list those and follow them, right? I was in trouble when we were talking 10. I was struggling when I was just trying to follow 10. And now we've got 613 laws. How are we doing now, right? So if we think that God gave us the law as the standard to keep, if in fact there's the standard of good, people get into heaven, and that's the standard that good is, and if we can just keep the law, we'll be good enough and we'll get into heaven that way. Here's the problem. No one's ever done it. Heaven's empty. Because no one has ever followed the entire law. That standard is it's too high. If keeping the old, old covenant law is the standard, we've got a really, really, really big problem. Let's look at the law. Let's look at us and the law. Let's kind of look at us, me, you guys, uh, all of us, in relationship, in comparison to the law. See, the Bible standard, it's, it's way too high. It's just, it's too high. We could never keep it. Besides, the, the, the facts are, every time we broke the law, every time we broke one of the commandments, we actually have to either sacrifice a pig or, you know, a bull, cow, pigeon, something to get right with God. And, and that's impossible because without a priest or a temple in Jerusalem, which, by the way, those don't exist anymore, we, we, can't, we can't pull it off. So we've got a problem. See, here's a huge truth. God never gave the law to Israel expecting them to keep it. God never expected Israel to keep the law perfectly. That was never the expectation for Israel to keep all 613 of those commandments in fact that's the reason that he created a detailed system of sacrifices for them because he knew they, they weren't going to keep it he knew they weren't going to be able to keep the 613 laws because it was it was it was too high of a standard this whole thing this whole uh, law thing it is some kind of complicated uh, it is a complicated system of laws and sacrifices laws and sacrifices i mean exodus leviticus the whole thing very very complicated and we don't have the time, we don't have the facilities to approach God in this way. We don't have everything that's necessary to approach God in this way, the way it's laid out in the Old Covenant. It is impossible. Kind of a bummer, right? It's impossible. Here's another big truth. God never gave the law as a means to getting into heaven in the first place. You say, what? <laughs> Excuse me? God never gave the law as a means to get into heaven in the first place. You say, but wait a second, hold on. What was the point? 
What was the point in the law? What was the point in those 613 commandments that God gave to Israel through Moses if heaven, the afterlife, good versus bad, the law, whatever, if that had nothing to do with the law? What was the point? Well, it had a point. It had two very good reasons. The law had two very good uh, purposes. The first was extremely practical. The first was this. If you think about it, when God gave the law to Israel, they were coming out of 420 years of slavery in Egypt. They were a nation that had been enslaved for about 420 years. They had no order. They had no structure. They had no government. They were a nation without order. The law gave Israel order. It gave them structure. This is a very sideways comparison, and I even hesitate to give it, but... It may paint the picture. It's like almost Israel's constitution as soon as they leave 420 years of slavery. It, it, it's structure. It's government for a nation that has been enslaved for 420 years. That's the first very practical reason for the law. And the second reason that God gave the law to Israel, which is where we're going to park here for just a few minutes, the law was given as a mirror. It was given as a mirror to show us sin that already existed. To show a sin that already existed. See, we don't sin because of the law. We don't sin because of the law. The law just shows us sin that already exists in our lives. Paul actually explains it better than I ever could. And he does that in, in his letter to the church, uh, to the Christ followers, to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7. This is what Paul says in relationship to the purpose of the law. He says, in fact, this is Paul speaking, it was the law... That showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. In other words, Paul said, hey, I was coveting long before the law. Yeah, I was coveting. It was the law that showed me that coveting was wrong. The law was a mirror that showed me something that already existed inside of me. And see, this is true for me. This is true for us. Let's look at the law and us again. I, I tell you what, let's, let's just take the law out for the moment. Let, let's forget about the 613 Jewish laws. Let's just look at our local state and, and local uh, community rules for a few moments. Let's just think about our local city and state rules for just a moment. Let's just think about our relationship to us and the rules just for a few moments. It's very simple. We break the rules. Why? Because we want to. Simple as that. Give you an example. When I was coming to Malvern this morning, I was driving on United States Highway 270. What is the speed limit on United States Highway 270? 55. What did I drive? 62. Why? Because that's what I wanted to drive. Now, I didn't drive it between Prattsville and Poen because them cats, they, they really pay attention on that run. I have learned. You don't drive over the speed limit between Prattsville and Poen. But the rest of the run, 62 on Sunday mornings. Now, the rest of the week, I may not do it. But on Sunday mornings, I can get by with 62. I have learned that I can set it on 62. Is that the rule? Nope. What's the rule? 55. What did I drive? 62. Do I care? Eh. The rules just revealed something that was already inside of me. Rebellion. Sin. And God's law, see, it was never meant to save us. It was simply meant to act as a mirror and show us something that was already inside of us. Sin. Rebellion. That's the purpose of the law. It's a mirror. Law was never meant to save. It was simply meant to act 
as a mirror to reflect something that was already deep inside from the moment that I was born. This is true. Even if I've thought about it differently, this is, this is true. If you really think about it, I think you can see that. See, the Bible never offers a system of getting into heaven by being good. We kind of just answered last week's question right there. I want to say that again because I don't want anyone to miss that. The Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, never offers a system of getting into heaven by being good enough. It's not there. You can't find it. The law never promises anything. The 613 Old Covenant laws given to Israel by God through Moses, there's nothing in there regarding the afterlife. Nothing. There's nowhere in there that says, if you keep the Old Covenant law, you're going to heaven, and if you do not keep the Old Covenant law, you're going to hell. Now, does it talk about some earthly consequences? If you, Yeah, sure. That's in there. But nothing related to hell, nothing related to heaven as it relates to the Old Covenant law and the afterlife. You may not believe me, and that's okay. Read Exodus. You won't find it. It's not in there. The law is not the key to get into heaven. In fact, it says absolutely nothing about it at all. Now, changing the subject slightly, whereas the Old Covenant, it says absolutely nothing, it seems to pretty much ignore it, the afterlife, heaven and hell. It seems to totally ignore it. The New Covenant, the last uh, 27 books of the Bible, Matthew through Revelation, the New Covenant, it's different. The New Covenant is chock absolutely full about verses talking about the afterlife, heaven and hell, full of it. Old Covenant seems to, you know, in the law it seems to just kind of ignore it, but the New Covenant, man, it's full of verses about heaven and hell. But once again, there's a problem if good is the standard. The New Covenant it's really not any help in finding a standard telling us how good we can be. It's really not any help either. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit better. Because the New Covenant, it kind of gives us a standard of good, but the New Covenant seems to tell us that the standard is hopelessly high. The New Covenant basically seems to tell us that the standard is so high and we have to be so good as to be impossible. No way. Let me give you an example. Let me see if I can paint the picture a little bit better. We're going to read some verses, several verses in fact, written by Paul to the Christ followers in, Rome's from the, uh, Rome, uh, in Rome called Romans. We're going to start reading in the book of Romans chapter 3 verse 23. This is, uh, many people have memorized this verse in fact but this is what Paul says he says for everyone not almost everyone not most everyone everybody everyone has sinned now I don't want to walk run past that word sin because sometimes we just say sin and we just kind of run past it that term sin is actually a word that means to miss the mark. So if you think about it in archery terms, you know, and you think about like, you know, an archer, Olympics just went by, loved watching the archery in the Olympics. They are so good. Uh, but you think about an archer trying to hit the bullseye, and when they miss the bullseye, they miss the mark, they have sinned. You missed the mark. So Paul's saying everyone has missed the mark. They've sinned. And as a result of missing the mark, as a result of our sin, we... Everyone falls short of God's glorious, there it is, 
standard. That standard, because we've missed the mark, is unreachable. Can't get there. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one, no one. Romans 6, 23, for the wages, the results, uh, the outcome, the thing that has been earned as a result of our missing the mark, as a result of our sin, for the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, separation from God. I like this one the best, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. It's a mirror. See, the new covenant comes out and it says so clearly what the old covenant doesn't really address. The new covenant says it in clear, black and white, crystal, sometimes red, crystal clear terms. No one's going to make it to God by being good. Can't be good enough. Now, if that's not enough, Jesus kind of takes over from there. Jesus actually um, ratchets it up a little bit. Jesus kind of powers it up a little bit in some of his teachings. We, we can take the old covenant law and we can have that as a standard and we can look at those 613 laws and say, ain't no way. And we can talk about some of the writings of Paul, but we, we can look at some of the actual teachings of Jesus and we can see how Jesus takes the standard and makes it impossible for me to reach. If, in fact, good is the answer. Jesus said in his teachings that the best of the best of the best of the people who were living in the time that Jesus was teaching they weren't good enough. They couldn't be good enough. As good as they were, Jesus says, they're not good enough. Now, the best of the best of the best in the first century were a group of people called the Pharisees. You may have heard of them. They were a group of people called the Pharisees. Literally, the Pharisees were the professional law keepers. That's what they did. Their job was to keep the rules. They were the law keepers. They were the best of the best at keeping the rules. Oh, what a job to have said, no one, I cannot imagine how exhausting that had to have been. But that's what they did. That's what their calling was. They were rule keepers. They were the professional law keepers. Um, it was their job to keep the laws as close as humanly possible. In fact, and this is very interesting to me, the Pharisees were so paranoid about keeping uh, the 613 Jewish laws, uh, they were so paranoid about breaking one, that they actually would add laws of their own to help keep the laws. They, they would add their own laws to keep from possibly breaking a law. Crazy, right? So, so this is what it looked like. If the law said that you shouldn't plow on the Sabbath, if the, law, if, if the Jewish law, which it did, said don't plow on the Sabbath, then the Pharisees would add a law, they would create a law, they created a law that said, in addition to not plowing on the Sabbath, they said, you also cannot drag a chair or a table across the ground on the Sabbath. Because here's why. Because if you did that, uh, it was possible that the table leg or the chair leg would potentially leave a mark in the dirt as you drug it. And if it let a mark, uh, left a mark in the dirt as you drug it, it meant that you possibly could break up the soil in the dirt, which meant you possibly could have plowed on the Sabbath. These cats were serious about keeping the law. 
right? So for every one of the 613 Jewish laws, they would add more laws. These guys were serious about keeping the law. They were the best of the best. They were the best living at that time. They followed the law. They taught others how to follow the law. That's what they did. They were the best at following the law. Now, this is what Jesus had to say about the best of the best and the standard that they reached. Matthew tells us what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. This is Jesus speaking. But I warn you. Now, remember this before we go any further. This is important. Everywhere Jesus goes, there's a crowd. Everywhere Jesus teaches, there's a crowd. There's a crowd that follows Jesus everywhere. He, it got so bad to the point there's times Jesus just tries to get away from the crowd. He's exhausted physically. Jesus teaches. Jesus speaks. People listen. People are there. So remember, there is a huge crowd of first century Jews listening to what Jesus has to say. And Jesus is talking to them. Jesus is the master teacher, the master speaker, the master orator. He knows how to talk. He knows how to speak. He knows how to get his listeners' attention. And he knows how to get a point across. And this is the way he does it. He says, but I warn you, speaking to the average everyday Jew, I warn you, unless your righteousness, unless your ability to follow the rules, to do what's right, to follow the law, unless your righteousness is better than not almost as good as, not equal to, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. To that, these hundreds, maybe thousands of people that are listening to Jesus, we don't know, but it would have been a lot of First century Jews that would have listened to what Jesus had to say, they would have had to have been taken aback. What? You're telling me that we are expected to keep the rules better than the Pharisees? Jesus is basically saying to these cats, as good as the Pharisees, uh, as you think the Pharisees are, they're not good enough. The standard is too high. You can't, as good as you think the Pharisees are, they can't reach the standard of good enough to get into heaven, if that, in fact, is how you get in. And his listeners at that time would have had to have thought, wow, if they're not good enough, what does that mean for me? Kind of, I mean, <laughs> kind of in the same boat, right? If they're not good, what does that mean for me? If these professional good people are not good enough, if they can't meet the good standard, what hope is there for me? Now, if we left it right there, if Jesus was silent on the topic, at that point, that would probably be enough. But he's not. He keeps going. Because Jesus then, he ratchets it up again. He raises the standard again. It's already unreachable. But he makes the standard of the law very, very clear, and he makes it completely unreachable. The next few verses that we're going to read come from the book of uh, from Matthew's gospel. But they all come from the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's, it's in several uh, gospels, but we're going to read from Matthew. I'm not going to read the references, just know this is all from the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, huge crowds would have heard Jesus teach this. But again, Jesus is ratcheting up this standard. And this is what he says. You, you've heard the commandment, 
that says you must not commit adultery. Now remember, he's talking to first century Jews. He's talking to people who know this stuff. They would have heard that and they would have said, yes, Jesus, gotcha. Don't commit adultery. That is, that's, one of the, that, that's it. That's one of the 613. Gotcha. That is, a, that is the Jewish law. I got it. I learned that in synagogue school when I was a little fella. Got it. Jesus, I'm all over it. They, w- they would have heard that and they would have known exactly what he was talking about. We hear that and we just kind of, eh, maybe we pass by that a little bit. We know what Jesus is talking about, but they would have heard it and they would have felt it. You, you don't commit adultery. And they would have said, yes, Jesus, you don't commit adultery. We know that. Moses told us that. Then Jesus goes on, he says, well, I'm telling you this, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the listeners would have went, what? There goes 50 to 75% of us right there. We're out. That's it. We can't. I can't reach that standard, Jesus. That is too high. We're out. We're eternal lawbreakers. We're out. Jesus in the same teaching says to his listeners, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Again, his Jewish listeners would have heard, yes, that's a Ten Commandment. That's one of the big ones right there. Don't, don't murder. And Jesus goes on. He says, but I'm saying, and he ratchets it up. He says, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court and if you curse someone you're in danger of the fires of hell well there goes everybody else you're out you can't read that standard is too high so here's what that means if we're looking for a god who lets good people into heaven we need to run as far away from the bible as we possibly can And if Jesus stopped right there, it would just be awful. And it would be like, oh my goodness, Jesus, the standard, it's, it's unattainable, it's unreachable. And Jesus, what are we going to do? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He really turns the world on its, on its ear in just a moment. And, and he just completely throws everything for a loop. He, he, he's made the standard so high as to make it humanly unreachable. If, you know, how do we get in? And then Jesus does something that is really really throws the world on its ear because then jesus apparently says not only do good people not get in bad people do get into heaven see jesus the sinless son of god he's dying on the cross he's he's moments maybe from death he's he is very close to death dying on the cross on both sides of jesus he's got Criminals on both sides, criminal on one side of him, criminal on the other side of him, about to die as well. Maybe not as soon as Jesus dies, they're probably going to suffer longer than what Jesus does, historically tells us. But Jesus is about to die, the sinless son of God, a criminal on one side and a criminal on the other. Bad people on both sides. You say, "Ah, how do we know they're bad? Well, because they say it. This is the way Luke tells us. This is what Luke tells us happens. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him, hanging beside Jesus, scoffs. Speaking to Jesus, says, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. So one of the criminals, one of the bad people. But the other criminal protested. He says, don't you 
fear God even when you have been sentenced to die. Then he says in verse 41, we deserved to die for our crimes. This guy admits it. We are bad. We deserve to be executed. Execution in the Roman world via crucifixion, it's the worst you can do. It's, that is reserved for the worst of the worst. It's, in many ways, it's reserved for the political criminal as well, but it is the worst way to die. It is a terrible way to die. And that is the way that these men are being executed. They admit, hey, we're bad, and we deserve it. But he doesn't, but we do. He goes on, he says, but this man, speaking of Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then Jesus looks at this criminal, this bad man, and he replies, I assure you today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, that criminal, he had no time to do good, right? He had no time to do good things. He had no time to, uh, to tip the scale in his favor. He had no time to do that. He had no time to, to do good things in the scale that we think of good. He had no time to tip the scale in his favor. He had no time left. And Jesus said to that man, that bad man, that self-professed bad man, you are in. I'll see you in a little while. So according to Jesus, according to the new covenant, not only do good people not go to heaven, bad people do. So if we embrace this idea that, quite honestly, the majority of the world historically have embraced, which is good people go to heaven. you got to be good to get into heaven. If we embrace this idea that good people go to heaven, we can't embrace the teachings of Jesus. We can't embrace the person of Jesus. Now, you may very honestly think that I've misrepresented Jesus, and, 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 and that's okay. If you have, that is okay. Um, you, you may think that I've misrepresented the new covenant. That is okay. I would just encourage you, look. Look for yourself. Look at the Gospels. Look at what Matthew said. Look at what Mark said. Look at what Luke said. Look at what John said. Look at what they said Jesus said. If you think that I've misrepresented Jesus, look. Because I'll be honest with you, once again, this is a tough week for us. For Harley and Stuttgart, for me right here. This is a tough week for us here at the church in Malvern, for me here at the church in Malvern. Because the last two weeks, last week and this week, what we have done, this is very different for us. What we have done, we have just talked about ways that, kind of like the song we started with last week, you can't get into heaven. We've talked about ways you can't get in. We've talked about ways that you're not going to get into heaven like this. We've just given you more ways you're not going to get into heaven. We've, I hope, very clearly, through the words of Jesus, through the new covenant, shown that you're not going to get into heaven by being pretty good, being good. You're never going to be good enough, according to Jesus. You're never going to reach that standard of good, according to Jesus. We tried to show that you're not going to get into heaven by following these 613 Jewish laws. We're never going to meet that standard. And last week we asked you to kind of ask yourself that question of if God walked up to you today, eyeball to eyeball, and said, hey, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? This week we've got two next steps for you. We'd really like you to seriously consider these next steps. And the first next step is very simple. We'd like you to read. We'd like you to read one chapter from the New Covenant. And while you're reading it, we would like you to see if you can find yourself in this chapter. I'm going to do it as well. I'm going to read. 
Romans chapter 7. If you would consider, take that next step with us this week. Read Romans chapter 7 and see if you find yourself anywhere in Romans chapter 7. And talk to God about it. Read Romans chapter 7, look for yourself in there anywhere, and then talk to God about it. That's the first one. And the second next step is this, and this is so, 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 so important. Last week, this week, we've talked about ways you can't get into heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't meet that standard. God's standard is too high, and we can't meet it. So our other next step is this. Come back next week. Come back next week. Do everything you can to remove any obstacle possible to come back next week as we begin to climb out of what probably is beginning to seem like a hopeless pit of is pretty good, good enough. Because apparently, at least according to Jesus, apparently, at least according to the new covenant, pretty good's not good enough. You can't be good enough to get in. And starting next week, we are going to begin answering the question, how do you get in? What is the answer? What is the script? What is the key? Let's pray. Jesus, you, you very clearly said to us that unless we're better than the Pharisees, we're not going to enter heaven. And God, I already know that I have not lived anywhere near as good of a life as what the Pharisees lived. So if they weren't good enough, there is absolutely no way that I'm going to be good enough to get into heaven. And Jesus, please, please, please do not allow anything. Help us, every single one of us in this room, every single one of us, our kids, our work, our families, everything. Help us to remove any obstacle that's going to keep us from coming back next week as we begin to find the truth about who actually will get into heaven and how. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard this week and give us the courage to do it. And it's in your name that we ask these things. Amen.